Hola, and welcome to Latino Book Chat. I am your host, Christian Meneses Jacobs. We invite you to participate in our conversations with Latino authors, illustrators, and others who share their insights into the book publishing industry. Daniel Olivas is a playwright attorney and the author of 10 books, including How to Date a Flying Mexican, New and Collected Stories, The King of Lightning Fixture Stories, and Crossing the Border Collected Poems. He's also the editor of Latinos in Lotus Land, an anthology of contemporary Southern California literature. His plays Waiting for Godinez, The Book of One, and Waiting have received many awards. He has written for many publications, including the New York Times, Alta Journal, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Huffington Post, La Bloga, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Latino Book Chat welcomes Daniel Olivas. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, it's an honor, Christiane. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm delighted to be here with you. When did you decide you wanted to become a published author? So I think I wanted to be a published author when I was able to write. I was um, first learning how to write sentences like in first and second grade. I wrote my first little children's books because I just loved books from a very young age because of my parents, I think, because they, they also love books. Um, <laughs> That's I, where I had, it always starts, right? Uh-huh, exactly. They made sure certain we always had our library cards. I would have dreams of, um, as I went through and looked at picture books and and other books as I, as I got older, that someday I would publish. But I never did go to get an MFA to study writing. Uh, it wasn't until much later in my life. I was 39 after I had already established myself as a lawyer. Um, and the reason why I started to write was my wife had the fifth of what would eventually be seven miscarriages. Mm. So I wasn't dealing with my grief very well. I was um, helping my wife and our young son with their grief, but I wasn't handling the pain I felt very well. So I started to write fiction. I ended up writing my first book, a short novel called uh, The Courtship of Maria Rivera Pena. And it was basically based on family history. It ended up being very cathartic. It helped me kind of work through the pain I was dealing with. But once I got that written and then off to a little publisher, I just couldn't stop writing. So ever since that time, 1998, when I started writing fiction, to now, I've I've now written 10, 10 books, um, edited a couple of anthologies, I've written plays, and I've written for many other publications. I balance that writing with uh, my legal profession. I am a very a senior attorney now with the California Department of Justice. I do environmental enforcement and land use and affordable housing work. So I just kind of live two lives basically now. <laughs> yeah, it's like you have two identities. Yes, like Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Do people at work know that you are a published author? Yeah, they know. They know. Um, and uh, a lot a lot of the lawyers I work with, they're very big readers. They love books. They belong to book groups. And, you know, they're dealing with words every day, of course. Uh, and, and some of the lawyers in my office are published writers, you know, people who write fiction. Yeah. So it's not so unusual that a lawyer should also be a writer because we are always dealing with words and, you know, we tend to be big readers. It's interesting you say that because my grandpa was a lawyer mm -hmm. and he was also a published author. He oh. wrote poetry, yeah, he wrote fiction and nonfiction 
and he wrote also three or four books about law. And I always thought that's strange. He's a lawyer and an author as well. But I guess it's not unusual, like you say. It's not unusual. I mean, there's some some wonderful lawyer writers, for example, um, Ishta Maya Murray, who's a wonderful novelist. She's a law professor at Loyola Marymount, uh, Loyola Law School here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael Nava, who's now a retired lawyer. And, you know, he he's written a series of books, uh, crime fiction. Um, so, you know, there's a fair, even within the Latinx community, you know, there's a fair number of us who are lawyers and, and also writers. I was wondering if being a, an attorney helps you with your storytelling. I think so. And I think it cuts both ways. Um, I think that my training as a lawyer helps me with editing. I'm a very tough editor. So that has spilled over nicely in my creative writing because I think a good writer needs to be a good editor too. You know, they say you have to be able to kill your little darlings. Yeah. You have, you, yeah, right. You have to be able to cut and trim and organize and find the right way to say things. Uh, conversely, I think that my legal writing has gotten better uh, the more I publish fiction and poetry and plays and essays. And I think that's because I'm exercising basically the same muscles. You know, I'm trying to use language at its most succinct, powerful level. Because, yeah, a successful lawyer is a lawyer who can tell a good story. People who aren't lawyers like to think, oh, the law is so boring and dry. No, a really wonderful, well-written brief is a brief that tells a good story, that is compelling, that is tightly written, and also explains why you should win. And I think a lawyer who fails is a lawyer who forgets that their audience is also a person. You know, judges can get bored by bad writing. Yeah. uh, You know, but if you're able to communicate with a judge with clear writing, telling a powerful story, you're halfway there in terms of winning your case. So I think- That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I think lawyers actually can learn a lot about language by reading a lot, by reading fiction and poetry and plays and and creative nonfiction. I wanted you to talk to us about your latest work, How Today, A Flying Mexican. What an interesting title that is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my introduction to this book, I explained that um, the idea for the book came during the last part of my father's life. My father had lung disease. He was a very big reader. He passed away in 2020. Oh, and, sorry. And, and well, I was very lucky. You know, we were all lucky to have him. He lived to 88. Um, oh, wow. he, and he had, he had had dreams to be a writer. When he worked in a factory and he was a young father, he would type away on a portable typewriter a uh, Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter, the same brand or model that Hemingway liked to use. He wrote poetry and fiction, but he could never get published. So he destroyed all his work and he focused on getting educated and improving his life, being a good father and a good husband. So when I became a published writer, he was so excited. So at the end of his life, we were talking a lot about my writing. He wanted to talk about literature. He didn't want to talk about the law. He wanted to talk about literature. (laughs) In those conversations, at near the end of his life, I decided and I explored with him the idea of going through and reading all my past published short stories and choosing some of my favorites and collecting them in a brand new volume and adding a couple of new stories. And one of his favorite stories of mine was a story called How to Date a Flying Mexican. 
And it was a magical realism story. And later on, I'll, I'll read the first page of it for you. It was a story that explored, you know, sexism within our culture and within the Catholic religion. And it centered on a very strong woman named Conchita. Um, and there's some magical uh, elements to it. He always laughed at that story. He said, I just love that title. So I decided to use that story as a title story for this collection. And so uh, these are some of my favorite stories that I've published throughout the years. I've probably published over 100 stories throughout the years in different collections. So these are some of my favorite stories, some uh, magical realism, some dystopian fiction, some science fiction, told from many different perspectives. So this, this is my first book that was published without my father being on this earth. So this book is in honor of him. Yes, it's dedicated to my father. I very much enjoyed the stories. I felt as I was listening to stories from my abuelita, cuando ella se sentaba en su mecedora, her rocking chair. Mm -hmm. And then she would tell me all kinds of crazy and magical stories. Mm -hmm. So as I kept reading, I noticed, like you said, a lot of the magical realism that was woven into the majority of the story. So was Mm -hmm. that intentional? So, yeah, so over the years, the stories I wrote kind of covered everything from very realistic stories, you know, like involving gang violence and immigration issues to more magical stories. So in many ways, I wanted, I did want to have some, most of my stories in this collection to be, to be on the magical or, or kind of stranger plane, if you will. And a lot of that was inspired, a lot of those kind of stories was inspired by kind of the, you know, the Mexican storytelling culture I grew up in, the kind of stories my grandmother would tell, she would tell crazy stories. Oh, my God. <laughs> it sounds like my grandma, too. Oh. And <laughs> she would... Grandma's oh, <laughs> yeah. And so she was from Jalisco. She came to the United States around 1920. And she would tell these stories, just absolutely believe every every bit of them. <laughs> my grandmother, too. <laughs> You know, and and so you. And you know, yeah. as a kid, I believed them too. <laughs> well, I believed them too, but 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 that kind of but that kind of upbringing can kind of really get into your brain and play games. So my mother paid me a very big compliment. She she tells me that my stories sound as if they were written in Spanish and then translated into English. Mm. And she <laughs> says that. It's because of the rhythm of the language and the sound of language and the kind of words I use just make her feel like she's almost reading in Spanish, even though I write in English. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, the fact that my grandmother told me stories and my parents told me stories. They express themselves uh, in a way that is coming from the Mexican culture, you know, the way of telling stories. The approach to the stories, you know, my stories involving involving the devil, for example, you know, there's always a lot of humor. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's not the kind of devil stories that maybe in the United States, uh, the stories uh, might be just scary. Mine tend to be kind of darkly humorous and kind of uh, make fun of the human condition. Yeah, I wonder if you're referring to the one of my favorites in the collection, Don de la Cruz and the Devil of Malibu. Oh, so one of, <laughs> one of the things I like to do is kind of mix up the different cultural aspects. Not only is, you know, Don de la Cruz, you know, a Mexican character, but I place it in old Malibu, which is part of, part of the United States now, of course. 
I like to blend the cultures because, frankly, you know, we live in a blended culture, right? Yeah. And so, and sometimes we're not really of this country. Sometimes, you know, we feel like we're kind of foreign, right? Or uh, because the dominant culture, the government might make us feel that way. So I like to blend those elements and also show kind of like the culture shock when those when the two cultures kind of clash. And in this, your story, Frank Kafka in Fresno, I really like that one too. <laughs> what inspired that story? Because it, it, it really has another touch of myth and magical realism in it. But I was wondering, where did he get the inspiration for this one? So I love reading Franz Kafka. That story in particular um, touches upon or has uh, allusions to Franz Kafka's you know, great work metamorphosis yes um, mm -hmm. but if you read that story nothing truly magical happens only very strange things happen there's nothing that is particularly magical it's just a, a bunch of very strange situations occurring primarily dealing with with poor with my poor character who's half <laughs> half german and half and half mexican and uh, you know his name is franz Kafka. <laughs> Poor kid. His, his father named him Franz because his father truly believed that they were related to the great writer. But basically, that just got poor, this poor Franz Kafka beaten up in school. <laughs> and even though I know I'm going to read a little something a little bit later, I kind of wanted to read a short paragraph from that story because I think it captures what I'm trying to do with my stories. So let me just read a short paragraph from the opening of Franz Kafka in Fresno. Franz Kafka hated his father, and he had good reason to. Specifically, Franz could not forgive his father for insisting that his only child be named Franz. Franz understood that his father was very proud that he likely was related to the great writer whose surname he shared. However, with a name like Franz, Karl Kafka virtually guaranteed that his son would be beaten up every day of his life from kindergarten through high school. Fresno was not a hospitable place for a slender, overly intelligent German-Mexican kid named Franz. Franz wondered why he couldn't have been named after some relative on his mother's side. The Gamboa family possessed many fine names from which to choose, such as Alfredo, Eloy, Cesar, and even Kiko, although that last name was really a nickname. Sometimes when he was nursing a black eye given to him by a bully, Franz would daydream about who he could have been. The possibilities made his young head swim in a giddy swirl. Can you imagine it? Kiko Kafka, who in his right mind, even in Fresno, would mess with a boy named Kiko Kafka. But alas, he was named Franz. And so it was, Franz hated his father. I love the way you read that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, I, mm. I really like that story. You know, the one that I liked was after the revolution. Mm. I felt so sad for Lazarus Faye, though. I thought he had found a happy ever after, and then mm -hmm. you punish him. <laughs> yeah. none of my stories have a happy ever after i don't think they do <laughs> no they don't but i really wanted lazaro to have one <laughs> you know you know what, what i like about what you just said i i like that 
you felt so connected to the character that you wanted him to have a good life. To me, that's a wonderful compliment because that means a character came to life for you. Yes, it you did. Know? I was rooting for him. Oh, Really? <laughs> and I was so sad. I think I wanted to cry. <laughs> Well, uh, your listeners now are, are going to be so intrigued. They have to go get the book and read and find out what the oh, happened. They have to. <laughs> Whoever is listening, you guys are listening. You need to find out what happened to Lazarus. Poor guy. <laughs> well, and, and that story was kind of fun because it takes place after the Mexican Revolution. So mm -hmm. I did research. I had to do research for that story to make certain I had the right historical touch points. And also I had the right technology because I do mention certain things like a washing machine. You know, I describe a washing machine. So I had to do research about what kind of washing machines existed back then, the kind of cars people drove and stuff like that. So so that so that was a kind of an interesting thing because I, I usually don't do that kind of research. Well, I did feel that I was in the right place at the right time. That's, <laughs> in the that's right good. historical period. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. His, historical pieces can you know they take an extra um, layer of work because if you get it wrong if you do something that's anachronistic include certain language that isn't appropriate or certain technology is not appropriate you can ruin the magic of the story you know you can ruin the story for the reader yeah because the reader notices right away we're like wait wait a sec that makes no sense <laughs> right right you say, yeah. say say you say you wrote a story that took place in 1925 and you mentioned like a touch toned phone or something you know which didn't exist yeah people would say no wait that doesn't that doesn't make sense so which one is your favorite story from this book oh gosh i mean look well the title story is one of my favorites because my father loved it so much it made him laugh and laugh but one of my one of my really favorite stories uh, in terms of if you're just asking me what i thought Mm -hmm. uh, was um, a story called The Fabricator. Oh, and, my goodness. Really? <laughs> that was yeah. a little scary. Too. It's a very dark story. It takes place in it the future. Is. takes place in the future. And you know how, you know, we have Mexican altars, you know, and all that, mm -hmm. and, and to remember those who have passed. Well, yes. in, in this story in the future, instead of that, there's this whole concept where people can have themselves, or their loved ones, rather, who have passed, uh, recreated in a like a sculpture that looks lifelike and they would have it set up someplace in their home and the entire industry of fabricators that's what they're called mm -hmm. is um, that's highly highly regulated by statute the artists or fabricators aren't allowed to take pictures they have to do sketches and they, it's a real art form uh, my story follows the prime mover behind the law who um, is one of the best fabricators around that story just has kind of a dark element in terms of um, what's going on in his mind in his relationship in his interactions with other people and with his work the fact that he's dealing with dead bodies all the time and trying to basically in a sense give the families comfort by creating these artistic images of their of their past loved ones and the ending is meant to be disturbing and confusing and kind of mysterious. And it was. It, it, <laughs> it really was. And makes I you do that twice. You had to do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> it was. A, it was a little creepy. Definitely creepy. <laughs> it was. I really had to read it twice, and it was. What did just happen? <laughs> I would love for that to be turned into like a 
like like Twilight Zone kind of episode, you know, a television show Ooh, or something. That would be perfect. Yeah. You know, so. And you say you wanted to read the uh, title story? Yeah, if you don't mind. No, um, of course. Go ahead. I'd like to read the first page. Uh, this is from How to Date a Fine Mexican. Rule number one, don't tell anyone about the fine part. After the second night, Conchita witnessed Moises flying in his backyard under the moonlight. And after the first night, they shared her bed, which happened to be the second night. She witnessed him flying in his backyard under the moonlight. She realized that no one, not even her sister Julieta, could learn of her new novio's extraordinary talent. What would people think? Certainly, gossip would spread throughout the neighborhood, eventually migrating south out of Los Angeles and down below the border to Conchita's hometown of Ococlan via whispered phone calls, wisecracking emails, and even terse, though revealing, postcards. Yes, the chisme would most certainly creep out of the city limits, inexorably spreading like a noxious fog, finally reaching all of her friends and family who would shake their collective head about poor Conchita Lozano de la Peña finally going loca. And, of course, they would proclaim such madness involved lust. See what happens when you don't settle down like all good Catholic Mexican women and marry a man who can give you children and something to look forward to in old age? No God-fearing woman should enter her sixth decade of life, as Conchita had two years earlier, without having walked down the aisle to accept the sacrament of marriage. And it makes no matter that Conchita certainly doesn't look her age, with skin as smooth as Indian pottery, combined with a voluptuous figure that would knock the false teeth out of any mature and eligible man. But that's the problem, you see. Too much fun, not enough pain. And now Conchita thinks she has fallen in love with a Mexican who can fly. Ay, Chihuahua. <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> I, I like that story so much. I read it twice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's interesting is that story is actually a chapter from a, um, one of my novels, the novel is called The Book of Want, published by mm. University of Arizona Press. I turned that novel into a stage play. I adapted it for the stage last year. We had a Zoom reading mm. last year where actors performed my play in a reading. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful having Conchita come to life through uh, an actress who played her. So um, it's, That's so real, cool. <laughs> it's really a different kind of experience to have your words performed by professionals. That is really cool. Are you working on anything new? Yes. So in going through this process of uh, pulling together this book, I also noticed that a lot of my stories touched on the question of what the meaning of love is. So I have another collection that is being read by a publisher right now, and it's a collection of some of my prior stories, but also um, five brand new stories. Mm. And the title of that collection is called My Chicano Heart, New and Collective Stories of Love and Other Transgressions. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
Um, so it's being read by a publisher. I hope it gets picked up. Um, if it does, maybe it'll be published next year. So uh, oh. keep your eyes open. And I'm always writing essays and I'm reading a ton of books by wonderful writers, a whole group of Latinx writers. I've been reading their work as I start to prepare uh, short interviews with them. I do a lot of interviews with, with Latinx writers in the same way you do, um, but I do, I do them in writing, you know, like for the Los Angeles Review books and La Bloga and other places. Oh, okay. And oh, that's there's, great. There's some wonderful books. There's a great book, a novel called The Lost Dreamer by Liz Huerta. It's her mm-hmm. first book. I've known Liz for many years, and it's, it's a fantasy young adult novel, and it's beautiful. Uh, Gabino Iglesias has a new novel out coming out soon called The Devil Takes You Home. It's a crime fiction novel that also has um, magical elements to it. And oh, um, I have to check those out. Oh, wonderful writers. And then Edgar Gomez. Edgar Gomez has his first memoir out, and it's called High Risk Homosexual. It's a memoir about his coming out as a young gay man in Florida in a you know Latino family. Uh, it's a beautiful book. It's very funny. A lot of great humor in it. And then I have waiting to read soon. Silvia Moreno Garcia has a brand new horror book out novel. Uh, well, I think it just came out. She had written a, a novel a couple years ago called Mexican Gothic, which got oh, a lot of coverage. Yay, yeah, yeah, I yes. That book. Mm-hmm. She has a brand new book just released called The Daughter of Doctor Moreau. Oh, and and so I have an advanced copy of that. So I'll be reading that next. And I, I think it's important for me to help promote other writers who are getting um, out there and, and getting brand new books out. Very much worth um, people's time. That's one of the reasons why I do this podcast, because I think we need to get the word out about our Latinx authors and illustrators as well and to support our community and let other people know about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to help each other. No, yep. I think that's very important. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad you're doing this that too in a different form, but in a different medium, but you're you have the same goal with that as well. Exactly. You know, podcasts are now really the, the way to go. <laughs> and you know, like last weekend I was listening to some of your podcasts and I just put my headphones on I, and I feel like I'm I'm sitting there with with you and the writer and it's just it's a wonderful way to hear her other writers approach process. Thank you for the support. I really appreciate it. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, the book is How Today, Flying Mexican, New and Collected Stories by Daniel Olivas. You can buy a copy of the book through our new online store at nikagal.com. N-I-C-A-G-A-L.com. Nikagal.com. You will also find the other books that we have featured on the Latino Book Chat podcast. And please support Latino Book Chat by coming back every other Monday for more episodes. Daniel Olivas, thank you so much for chatting with us today on Latino Book Chat. It has been a pleasure. Oh, it has been absolute joy talking with you, Christian. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for joining us today. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at latinobookchat.com. Please subscribe on your favorite platform. Whatever you're listening to us today, please give us a positive review and as many stars as possible. Sharing the show will help it grow and continue to come to you. Thank you for your support. Hasta pronto. Latino Book Chat is a production of Nicagal Media. Today's episode was hosted, produced, and edited by Christian Meneses Jacobs. <laughs>